2 Corinthians chapter 7. We're going to be looking at verses 10 through 16. The title of the message tonight, is, or today, wow, so today is what repentance looks like. We've, we've been learning about, last week if you were with us, confrontation and repentance and comfort. And we, we learned that Paul was one of those guys that was willing to confront his friends in love. See, of course, that's, that's the buzzword in Christianity today, right? Um, I'm confronting you in love. Anyone can say, look, I'm just speaking the truth in love. They can say, look, I need to speak the truth in love, so here goes. I don't like you. <laughs> I need to speak the truth in love here. You stink. That's not exactly what Paul's doing here. Paul gave us some things, actually, to check. This is a, a bit of review from last Sunday. Some things to check to make sure that when you confront someone that you're actually doing it from a heart of love. We won't go over it, but in verses 2 through 7, these are some things we, we learn to check on your own heart. Is my heart right? Am I out to injure this person or just to make myself look better? Or am I out to condemn this person or am I actually willing to walk through this person's recovery with them? Am I hopeful for their future just as hopeful as I am direct with them when they need it? And do I notice and am I willing to express the things that this person is doing right? We learned all of those things last Sunday. You can get a tape if you're interested. The big question is, is this just to get this off of my own chest? Because the, the Bible doesn't ever in, uh, encourage us just to get it off our chest, but to, Jesus says, when, when a, a brother offends you, go to him, confront him, and if he hears you, what? You have won your brother. You have restored this, this fellowship, which is the key. All right, so we saw that, but we also saw that even when, you dis even when your heart is right and you go to confront someone, even when you lovingly confront them, sometimes you can doubt yourself. You can even doubt that you heard from God. Paul, Paul had that exact experience. Um, this is our setting this morning. He had sent a letter of correction to the Corinthians. Could have been 1 Corinthians. It could have been what some scholars call the severe letter, which was loss. And for a while, after he sent this letter in the hands of Titus, he thought, oh man, I shouldn't have done that. I've really blown it. He thought he had broken the relationship. Look with me at, at verse 8, 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 8. For even if I made you sorry with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it. So he says, I really thought I made a mistake here, but now I don't think so. Con continuing on, for I perceive that that same epistle made you sorry, though only for a while. Now I rejoice, not that you were made sorry, but that your sorrow led to repentance. For you were made sorry in, in a godly manner, that you might suffer loss from us in nothing. Basically, Paul is rejoicing that this letter was actually received the way he hoped. This letter was very painful, but it produced, it actually produced the right kind of pain. You guys know, right, there is an actual good kind of pain. Pain can be good. Listen to this quote from C.S. Lewis. He says, we can rest contentedly in our sins and in our stup stupidities, and as everyone who has watched gluttons shoveling down the most exquisite foods as if they did not know what they were eating, in other words, uh, a glutton who eats caviar like it's candy. He says, we will admit, 
like, like that person, we will admit that we can ignore even pleasure. In other words, pleasure doesn't really register with you so much when it comes to changing your course. But, listen to this, pain insists on being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasures. He speaks in our consciences, but he shouts in our pain. It is his megaphone to a deaf world. So there is a good pain. It's called godly sorrow. And the reason it's good is because it leads to repentance. We talked about repentance last time. It's a changing of course. It's not only saying, Lord, I'm sorry, you're right. But Lord, I am now changing directions. Verse 10, 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10, it says, For godly sorrow produces repentance, that change, leading to, what? Salvation. Not to be regretted, but the sorrow of the world produces death. This is where we left off last time. There are two kinds of sorrow mentioned there in verse 10. And they produce two different things. There is godly sorrow, which produces what? Repentance. That's an actual change of direction. It's a behavior for the better. This kind of sorrow, it says, leads to salvation. For instance, the salvation of a marriage. Saving a relationship. Saving a job. Maybe even saving a life. If it concerns uh, coming to the Lord, it also can mean the salvation of a soul. And he says, and the sorrow of the world, though, that's the other kind of sorrow. That just produces death. This is the sorrow when you just got caught. You're just sorry you got caught. Every person in prison is sorry. Many are just sorry they they got caught. Maybe even, you can even be sorry that your actions hurt others. But if you don't change direction, that's not godly sorrow. That is the sorrow of the world. Verse 10 tells us that this worldly sorrow leads to what? Death. So that means, think about it, if I just say I'm sorry, but I don't change direction, that leads to death. Death of trust, death of a marriage, death of a relationship, of a job, death of a life, or even of a soul. See, godly sorrow has a certain sweetness to it. Real repentance, real godly sorrow has a sweetness to it. Listen to what Spurgeon said. He said, in repentance, there is a a bitter sweetness or a sweet bitterness, which shall I call it, of which the more you have, the better it is for you. Spurgeon says, I can truly say that I hardly know a diviner joy than to lay my head in my heavenly father's bosom and to say, Father, I've sinned, but you've forgiven me. And oh, I do love thee. See, godly sorrow actually has a certain sweetness to it. But the worldly sorrow, that saying, I'm sorry, but being unwilling to change, has the stench of death. Godly sorrow versus worldly sorrow. Would you say that it's fairly important to know the difference? If one leads to salvation, to life, abundant life, and the other one leads to death, maybe we should be able to identify when we are truly having godly sorrow versus the sorrow of the, death, of sorrow of the world. So how do you tell? How do you tell the difference between godly sorrow and worldly sorrow? Well, we learned last time, godly sorrow leads to actual change, to repentance. And repentance leads to life. 
Okay then, so the question is, what does repentance look like? Well, I'm glad you asked. Verse 11. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 11 says, For observe this very thing, that you sorrowed in a godly manner. And here's the evidence. What diligence it produced in you. What clearing of yourselves. What indignation. What fear. What vehement desire. What zeal. What vindication. In all things, you proved yourself to be clear in this matter. Do you need to know this morning if yours is a godly sorrow producing repentance? Or maybe some of you are thinking, what I need to know is if that other person, if they're they're telling me they're sorry, should I believe them? How do you tell the difference between a godly sorrow that leads to repentance and a worldly sorrow that just leads to death? Well, verse 11 tells us, the title of the message, what repentance looks like. You ready? Verse 11. For observe this very thing that you sorrowed in a godly manner. Here's the first thing. The first thing that uh, repentance looks like is diligence. He says what diligence it produced in you. Diligence in uh, Webster's, it calls it this. Persistent personal attention to a matter. Also, the Greek includes the idea of speed, of haste. So real repentance looks like this. It includes the desire to make things right permanently as soon as possible without delay. Let me give you an example. Real repentance, if if you go to the the customer service counter or, or you're having a meal and there's something wrong with your food, real repentance from someone who is serving you looks like this. I am so sorry, sir. I am on it. I'm personally dropping everything to make this right for you right away. That's what real repentance looks like. But worldly sorrow? Like this. I'm so sorry you found that rat in your soup. I feel terrible. Here's your bill. That's what worldly sorrow looks like. I really feel bad. Matter of fact, Lisa and I, we... We had an experience. I know she's thinking the same thing. We went with our good friends on a vacation many years ago. And when you're on a vacation, you don't know what restaurants are good and stuff. And we, we walked by and we came. There was somebody coming out of a restaurant and we said, so um, is this a good place? He goes, the chips are good. That should have been our clue. <laughs> should have been our clue, but we weren't smart enough. And the service was terrible. The food was terrible. And when we pointed that out to the waitress, she's like, I'm so sorry. I feel so bad. I just, I feel really bad. And she handed us our bill. (laughs) That was, that's worldly sorrow. It was no effort to say, I want to make this right. I want to do what is right. Let me ask you, which do you do to God? Which do I do to God? Do you say, Lord... I'm so sorry. And this is what I want to do to make it right. Or do you say, Lord, I am so sorry. I'm a sinner. Sorry about that. Jesus, here's the bill. Now you understand, he he wants to pay the bill. There's no problem there. But repentance, real repentance, goes beyond saying, Lord, could you just pay for that? Real repentance says, Lord, I want to change. I want to do this different. 
Real repentance looks like this. It includes diligence. A personal prompt action on the part of the sinner. It would include things like getting a filter for the internet. Or throwing away the stash of stuff that you should not own. Or breaking off that ungodly relationship. Or planning your day ahead of time so you have time for the Lord. Real repentance includes diligence. Redpath says, Godly sorrow that leads to repentance, therefore, is a sorrow that leads to a change of purpose, of intention, and of action. It is not the sorrow of idle tears. It is not crying by your bedside because, once again, you have failed. Nor is it vain regret, wishing things had never happened, wishing you could live the moments again. No, it is not that. It is a change of purpose and intentions, a change of direction and action. That's one of the things that godly sorrow, repentance looks like. Uh, Verse 11 again. For observe this very thing that you sorrowed in a godly manner, what diligence it produced in you, what clearing of yourselves. Repentance, real repentance, there will be a desire to clear yourself. This will clear it up. The the word uh, clearing is apologia. I wonder if that might come from the word apology. Real repentance sounds like this. I'm sorry. I was wrong. I've been wrong, and here's specifically where I'm wrong. But, understand... Real repentance is not just an apology. See, the Corinthians, what what Paul's referring to here is the Corinthians took this message to Titus and said, will you please tell Paul these are the things that we're doing, these are the actions that we're taking so that he'll know we're taking him serious. We want Paul to know. We want things to be right. See, real repentance involves wanting to clear yourself of any wrongdoing by making it right. Let me put it this way. Real repentance doesn't sound like this. Well, yeah, I I could have done better, but what about you? I mean, if your face hadn't been there, I wouldn't have punched it. Real real repentance means taking responsibility, focusing, focusing on your own sin, and taking steps to clear yourself. Verse 11 again, For observe this very thing that you sorrowed in a godly manner, what diligence it produced in you, what clearing of yourselves. And then he says, What indignation. That word, uh, indignation, irritation, vexation. It's the same word, kind of an odd word you might think in this sentence. It's the same word that was used of the Pharisees when Jesus would not stop the children from praising him. They were indignant. Those praises are reserved for God. How could you let that happen? That's that word. It's the same word. Remember when James and John asked their mommy to go to, to Jesus and say, Hey, will you get us the best seats in the kingdom, left and right? And they tried to uh, work their way around the other disciples to get the good seats. The other disciples were indignant. They were outraged. They were shocked. See, real godly repentance comes with some indignation at yourself. Real real, uh, repentance, real indignation sounds something like this. How can I be so stupid? What was I thinking? Real repentance includes thoughts like this. When sin comes back to your, mind, to your mind, when that sin that you did, it's a revulsion. It makes you sick. It's not something that you want to live over again. Now, let me say right here, 
this is a quick note that some of you need to hear for sure. This does not mean that you have to beat yourself up for that sin for the rest of your life. No. Matter of fact, look at ver- back at verse 8. That will help you see that. Verse 8 says, For even if I made you sorry with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it, for I perceive that the same epistle made you sorry, what? Though only for a while. See, God is not interested in or, or wanting you to be um, beating yourself up for the rest of your life. Godly sorrow is not eternal. It's only for a while. But godly sorrow produces repentance that leads to salvation. And verse 10 says that is not to be regretted. Do you get it? But what's the point here? The point here is that repentance is not just a lukewarmness about your offense. There's a holy indignation with your flesh, with your sin, with the devil. Where you realize that what you've done or what you've been doing is an outrage. It's a fist in the face of a holy God. A holy God who loves you. That's what real repentance looks like. Verse 11 again. For I observe this very thing. Excuse me. For observe this very thing. That you sorrowed in a godly manner. What diligence it produced in you. What clearing of yourselves. What indignation. And then he says. What fear. The word fear has several meanings in the Greek. One is the one that you think of. Right. A scared uh, terror. Then there's the, the biblical use which is the Tied with, for instance, God-fearing. That means an obedience, a reverence. I think in this verse, probably the New Living, Tra- New Living Translation has the best word here, which is what alarm. He says, what clearing of yourselves, what indignation, what alarm. See, again, it's the idea of urgency. It's not, oh, well, I'll take care of that sometime. It's an alarming this is the difference, the difference between godly sorrow, repentance, and the sorrow of the world can be illustrated this way. Picture a firehouse. Anybody here work for the fire department? Too bad. Hoping you could back me up here. Fire, firehouse, let's say six firemen sitting around playing cards. And the, the announcement comes across the radio. House on Main Street, fully engulfed, casualties likely. And they're like, I suppose we should take care of that. Somebody get my coat. See, that is not what repentance looks like. Here's what repentance looks like. Alarm bells go off and people jump up and say, we've got to get into action. Let me ask you again. When it comes to your private sin, are you hoping the fire's just going to go out? I mean, when, when the Bible or some preacher or your own conscience convicts you of sin is it you know i really need to take care of that someday i really or do alarm bells go off for the corinthians finally and we know the corinthians these were not model citizens for them finally the alarm bell went off that letter that that went into their midst was like whoop 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 we need to take care of this Matter of fact, we see that in the last three descriptors in verse 11. He says, Observe this very thing, that you sorrowed in a godly manner, what diligence it produced in you, what clearing of yourselves, what indignation, what fear. Then he says, what vehement desire, what zeal, what vindication. You guys get it? He's talking about fervor. He's talking about a fierceness. Actually, the word vindication there is the same word we get the word vengeance from. 
Now, it can either be used to avenge a party that's been wronged or just simply going after something, what, with a vengeance. Paul says to these Corinthians, I am so proud of you guys. And again, for Paul to be able to say that, it's pretty amazing about the Corinthians. But he's like, I'm proud of you. You, you did this. You went after it with a vengeance. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 5. Do you guys know that Jesus was into vengeance? Hopefully you'll see what I mean. Matthew chapter 5, verse 27. Jesus speaks. He says, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Verse 29. If your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and cast it from you. For it is more profitable for you that one of your members perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and cast it from you. For it is more profitable for you that one of your members perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell. Now, in case you're new here and you've never read that that scripture before, Jesus does not want you to apply this text physically. If so, I'm going to invest in eye patches and prosthetic hands. No. But he isn't using, notice, he's using radical language. I mean, this is what? Alarming language. What he's talking about is taking vengeance on that which is killing you. He's talking about radical surgery like you have to do with cancer. Taking vengeance on that which is killing you. Let me ask you, do you need to take vengeance today on a habit, a temptation, Does something need to be radically excised from your life? Something need to be burned or crushed or disconnected or thrown into the ocean or shredded? Does some ungodly relationship need to be severed once and for all? Let me ask you this. Are you planning something that you know God hates? If you are, you need to cut it out, literally. That is what real repentance looks like. What's our family, family memory verse? Everybody should, let me look. Luke 15, 10 says, Likewise, I say to you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. A lot of times we, we'll quote that verse when it comes to someone who doesn't know the Lord. And that's, that's a good uh, use of that word. But it doesn't say... For only unbelievers who repent, it says a sinner. Anybody here a sinner? Okay. You get what I'm saying? You have the opportunity here to make the angels in heaven rejoice. Why do they rejoice when one sinner repents? Because that is godly sorrow that leads to repentance, that leads to salvation of marriages, of careers, of reputations, of families of bank accounts, of mortgages, of health. See, Paul is proud of these Corinthians. As he finishes now, finishes verse 11, he says, In all things you've proved yourself to be clear in this matter. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 11, In all things you've proved yourself to be clear in this matter. Therefore, although I wrote to you, I did not do it for the sake of him who had done the wrong, nor for the sake of him who had suffered wrong, but that our care for you in the sight of God might appear to you. 
Now, he's probably referring to, if you've been with us, the scenario in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. You don't have to turn there, but you can if you don't believe me. There was a situation where a man was sleeping with his father's wife. Stepmother, half-mother, we don't know, but it was a, a terrible situation. And that church, the Corinthian church back then, was like, well, you know, we're, we're, all, we're loving, we're forgiving, it's, it's no big deal, you know. We're just here to love on everyone. Paul said, what are you thinking? You've got to get, get that person out of there. They're like a cancer. They're, they will corrupt the whole body unless you act upon this. So that was Paul's address in, in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Later on, uh, as we've seen in this letter, they, they actually responded to this and they were maybe going too far the other way. And Paul has to say, hey, let up. He's repented. Let him back in to the fellowship. Paul says, basically, verse 12, he's like, why did I write the letter? Did I write it for him who did the wrong? Was, I, was my main point to really attack this guy who had sinned so badly? No. Was my main point to avenge the guy who had been sinned against, the father? No, not really. Verse 12, he says, the reason that I wrote you was so that you would understand that I love you. That I don't want this fellowship to be... Uh, waylaid to be damaged to be killed off by sin in the midst see he didn't write it primarily for the sinner not even primarily for the one being sinned against but for the corinthian church and if you go back into those those letters you'll see that's exactly what paul's intention as he writes it he's like i'm not concerned about this or this i'm concerned about you that you you have this in your midst and it doesn't even phase you it doesn't affect you he was sounding the alarm in the corinthian church he was saying, you've grown comfortable with sin. But now, beautiful as it is, Paul says, but now you've repented. He says, and I'm proud of you. Verse 13. Therefore, we have been comforted in your comfort, and we rejoiced exceedingly more of the joy for the joy of Titus, because his spirit has been refreshed by you all. Now notice first. Not only are the angels happy when one sinner repents, not only is Paul happy when this church repented, but you notice the Corinthians too were happy. They're comforted. He says, we've been comforted in your comfort. Do you get it? The pain was a good pain. And it lasted a while, but it left a comforted Corinthian church. So what's an application? Repent. See, that word repent, you hear it, the only time it seems like you hear it anymore is in church, and most of the time it's with a finger like this. Repent is a good word. It means to change your direction, partly for your own good, partly because God loves you, right? The application is repent. It's a good word. There might be some pain. There will be some pain, probably, but it will only last for a while, and the comfort is what will remain. But notice also, I want you to see verse 13, that comfort is contagious and that joy is is catching. Verse 13. Therefore we have been comforted in your comfort and we rejoiced exceedingly more for the joy of Titus because his spirit has been refreshed by you all. You see that? We're comforted by your comfort. We're, we're rejoicing because of Titus' joy that he got from you. This is like a blessed virus. <laughs> your moms are like, there ain't no such thing. 
a blessed virus. Paul caught comfort from the comfort of the Corinthians by way of Titus. This was like a happy bug. Paul caught joy from the joy of Titus that he got from the Corinthians. uh, Titus, we'll call him typhoid Titus. He picked up this bug in Corinth because he saw the Corinthians truly repent. He's like, oh, that is so awesome. Such a blessing. And he takes it back and sneezes on Paul, if you will. See, in this part of the letter, it seems that everyone in this verse is being infected with either comfort or joy. Bless their hearts. This is a good thing. Let me ask you, are you contagious? Remember chapter 1? These are the verses that we were talking about with uh, Celebrate Recovery. Remember chapter 1? It says, you can turn with me if you want. Blessed be the God of all comfort who comforts us in all our tribulation that we may be able to comfort those who are in any trouble with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. There's a lot of comfort going on in that verse. And it's communicable. Let me ask you, I've been asking a lot of heavy questions. Here's an easier, nicer question. Have you been comforted lately? If you have been comforted lately, then God has comforted you that you might share that comfort with those who need comfort now. And if you are needing comfort today, your job is to ask for it. Because there are people here who have been comforted through the very same thing. When it comes to these things, the last thing you need, if you need comfort, the last thing you want is quarantine. Do you get it? Somebody sneeze the comfort of God on me, please. Maybe that's you today. Joy is the same way. Has someone refreshed your spirit like they did for Paul? See, we should be like Titus's. Who's who's the Paul in your life? I was thinking about this. Titus probably, you know, Paul's a, a big wig in the church. Titus probably like, man, I wish I could do something nice for Paul, but I mean, he's like, well, I can't really teach him much. That's probably what he's thinking, but he's wrong. Titus walks back and he's like, I was so blessed by the Corinthians. And Paul's like, oh, I so needed to hear that. Do you get it? Who's the Paul in your life that is desperately needing comfort? Paul was roaming around Macedonia basically saying, oh, man, I sure hope the Corinthians didn't take that letter bad. I haven't heard anything from anybody. I wonder, where is Titus? Titus, I wish he would come back and let me know how these things are going. Titus finally walks in and goes, Paul, you were right. They totally repented. This was so awesome. And Paul is comforted. Who in your life could use the comfort that you've been given? Could use the joy that you have right now? Verse 14. For if in anything I have boasted to him about you, he's talking, Paul talking about Titus, I am not ashamed. But as we spoke all things to you in truth, even so our boasting to Titus was found true. We saw this last time. Basically, Paul was not afraid to confront the Corinthians. He's like, you guys need to fix this and you need to fix this. But neither was he afraid to share his confidence in them. See, apparently, when Paul handed that letter that might go off like a bomb to Titus, the last thing that you would expect Paul to say, he said, okay, this is, this is tough, but Titus, you need to take this. You know what? I think, I think they're going to respond. I think they're going to actually repent. Then Titus walked away and Paul went, but do you get it? He actually, somewhere in there, he had confidence that they could actually change. 
and, and he was found right. Apparently, um, he, he said this to a famously carnal church. Basically, watch this. They, they will respond. And Titus came back and said, you're so right. Verse 15. And his affections are greater for you. He's talking about Titus. Titus' affections are greater for you as he remembers the obedience of you all. How with fear and trembling you received him. Therefore, he says, I rejoice that I have confidence in you in everything. A few things here as we wrap up about confidence. Paul had it in the Corinthians. Don't know why, but he had confidence in the Corinthians. This was a backbiting, quarreling. They, were, they had rampant sexual sin, divorce, lawsuits. They had turned the Lord's Supper into a selfish pig fest. Paul confronted them precisely, though, because he had confidence in them. That sooner or later, they could actually change. Let me ask you this. Who are your Corinthians? Who are those that you're thinking of right now who have consistently blown it? Up until now, they have consistently blown it. Are you willing to believe in them like Paul believed in the Corinthians? Are you willing to show the same kind of faith in them that Paul showed in the Corinthians and that Jesus showed in me and in you? Jesus is patient and confident in the fact that you can change. That's why you're here today. You're here because the the Word of God still works on the hearts of men and women. And He doesn't want you to just stay where you are. He's here because you can change. So that, there's the one thing, the confidence that Paul had. But also, I want you to see something else. Confidence. Uh, look at the word fear and trembling. Those words are used together a few times in the Bible. And what it, it's used to describe, listen to this, the anxiety of one who distrusts his ability completely to meet all requirements, but religiously does his utmost to fulfill his duty. Basically, fear and trembling is this. I can't possibly do this, but I'm going to try. Maybe this morning, all this talk about repentance. Maybe there's an area of your life, and you know it, and you say, well, I've repented 50 times. And maybe you've given up repenting. Maybe you're thinking, you know what? I tried. I haven't changed direction. I've been putting it off. I've been playing it down. I've been putting it aside. But today, maybe, the alarm bells are sounding. The problem is, again, I tried this before and I failed. If you're thinking, look, I tried. I tried and I just can't do it. Listen, you're halfway there. You're halfway there if you say, I can't do it. Fear and trembling, let me read it again, is used to describe the anxiety of one who distrusts his own ability completely to meet all requirements. That's you. You're halfway there. But religiously does his utmost to fulfill his duty. I can't do it, but I'm going to try. That's what repentance looks like. Lord, I can't do this on my own. But Lord, I can do it with you. See, This is the big thing that I want to try to get across today. Repentance does not sound like this. Lord, you fix me. I'll just be here hanging out, watching TV. I'll be be ready whenever. If you just want to fix me, 
I'm good for it. Repentance doesn't look like that. Repentance says, Lord, I want to participate. I want you to fix me. I know I can't do it by myself, but I want to do my part. Do you guys get it? We have this morning, every one of us, a chance to make the angels in heaven rejoice. As they see our lives today, and they look down and they say, ah, that's what repentance looks like. 